Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. Welcome to Ideas on Trapped, and today I have with me, virtually from Washington, D.C., Dr. Jasmine Rahman, who is the IMF Mission Chief for Nigeria. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Where to start would be that is Africa facing another debt crisis, especially in the light of COVID-19? So that's a very topical issue. Africa's debt gained global attention even before the COVID-19 crisis. That debt level has been on the rise for quite some time, and this is particularly true for low-income countries in sub-Saharan Africa. More than half of these countries were assessed to have been in or at risk of debt distress in 2019. But even those countries were not facing risk of debt distress, there were two important vulnerabilities. The first is composition of debt. A growing share of debt has been to external commercial creditors. For example, this year, more than half of Sub-Saharan Africa's debt service payments are going to be made to these creditors whose terms are not as favorable as they are, let's say, for international financial institutions like the World Bank or the IMF. And the second vulnerability comes from reduced capacity to repay debt. Average debt to GDP ratio in sub-Saharan Africa has increased by 10 percentage points in the last decade, while average revenue to GDP ratio largely remain unchanged. So in other words, debt servicing capacity has fallen behind debt. So there were already vulnerabilities before the crisis on the debt front. What has happened since COVID-19? The pandemic's impact on fiscal balance has been particularly devastating for commodity exporters, but really nobody has been spared. In the IMF's latest economic projections that we have just released, We are expecting real activity in sub-Saharan Africa to contract by more than 3% this year. Compare that to an average growth of 3% in last two years. So we are expecting a sharp contraction in output. And as you know, output contraction means lower fiscal revenues, which together with higher spending needs to support life and livelihoods, will raise deficits and debt across the continent. We are projecting average fiscal deficit in sub-Saharan Africa to nearly double this year compared to last year. Average debt level is also projected to rise significantly, reaching above 60% of GDP. Now, this is considerably lower than the levels that were reached in the 1990s, but there is a wide divergence across countries. Some countries are reaching very high debt levels. So bottom line, without a question, as a result of this pandemic, we are likely to see the number of low-income countries in Africa facing debt distress increase. You talked about divergences within the continent itself. So let's zero in on Nigeria here a bit, which I'm sure most of our audiences are interested in. How large are the fiscal challenges that Nigeria faces? I know there have been some worries in some circles that the current path is not a sustainable one. So Nigeria is one of those countries where debt level per se is not considered very high, but debt servicing capacity faces a precarious situation. 
due to very low fiscal revenues. So let's look at debt first. Overall public debt stock is estimated at 29% of GDP. This includes not just general government debt, but also all known potential government liabilities. In the IMF, we'd like to be comprehensive. Now, at this level, public debt is roughly half of the average in sub-Saharan Africa. It is also lower than various thresholds typically considered safe in analytical literature. As you know, there is no magic one safe threshold that can work for all countries, right? It depends yeah. on a country's growth performance, strength of policy and institutions, and risk perception, among other things. And we have looked at Nigeria's debt level from all of these angles, and public debt appears sustainable. So that's on debt. But when we look at debt servicing capacity, that is where you get out of the comfort zone. Interest rates take up a large share of revenues. So, for example, this year, all of federal government's revenues are expected to be spent on interest payments. Mm. The problem is not exorbitant interest costs. The problem is low revenues. Adding debt without raising revenues only increases vulnerabilities. Raising revenues is Nigeria's largest fiscal challenge, I would say. Total revenues, that includes oil and non-oil, was at 8% of GDP last year. Now, this is among the lowest in the world. To give you some perspectives, the average for sub-Saharan Africa is twice as high. The average for oil exporters is five times as high. Every government needs to collect a minimum level of revenues to deliver basic services and provide an enabling role for the public sector. We did some cross-country studies in the IMF, and based on that, the IMF estimates that this minimum threshold is at 12% of GDP. Now, Nigeria's collection is much less than that. So this is a challenge that Nigeria must overcome if it is to put its fiscal house on a strong footing and provide the kind of service its citizens need. What is needed to be done? There is no easy fix. This is going to require a lot of technical and policy efforts in the areas of tax administration and tax policy but above all, very strong political will. Let's stay on this revenue issue, because the usual discourse and I'd say sometimes response in policy circle is to conclude, as you laid out this problem, that the government needs to collect more revenue, and that means more taxes. But like you also said, the economy is shrinking. So isn't that a double whammy of some sort? Can you really raise revenue from a shrinking economy? Shouldn't growth policies be the priorities? And then a growing economy means the government can then strategize ways to collect more from sectors that are growing. Yeah, so let me unpack that. What I mean by increasing revenues that does not necessarily mean increasing tax rates. Take, for example, the CIT, corporate income tax. Nigeria has a rather high rate at 30%, but collection efficiency is very low because of widespread use of tax holidays and exemptions, which are kind of suboptimal compensation for a very difficult business environment. So 
Raising revenues does not necessarily mean raising rates. It means collection efficiency, and this is particularly true in the case of Nigeria. The active taxpayer share is very low across tax categories, whether we are talking about VAT, CIT, PIT. So indeed, the first order of business is to broaden the tax base by taking away some of these exemptions, improving the large taxpayer units, making sure that you have a taxpayer register which is up to date, properly segmenting the various taxpayers into small, medium, large taxpayers so you can properly target them, improve compliance. So these are really much more important than, let's say, increasing tax rate. On tax rate, for example, you know, Nigeria has a very low VAT rate. It used to be 5%, was increased recently to 7.5%, and it's much lower than, let's say, ECOWAS countries, which are your neighbors and comparable to Nigeria. But as said, you know, this is not the time to look at the rate increase. Indeed, the first order of business for Nigeria is to actually make sure to collect what is collectible, i.e. increase efficiency. Thanks for that clarification. Looking at the liquidity challenges that some countries have faced, especially in the light of the crisis, I mean, emerging markets, by some estimates, have seen capital outflows of over $40 billion. Some have argued, and I want to get your reaction to it, that the IMF has an important role as some form of intermediator or lender of last resort, given that the access of countries to dollar swap markets is not equal. So is that a role that the fund is really stepping up to at this moment? You are absolutely right. Countries typically come to the IMF when they're facing challenging circumstances. For example, the government is not able to pay for vital public spending or there is not enough foreign exchange to pay for necessary imports or service debt. But this crisis is very different. It is unique and massive in its scale. This is not your typical balance of payment crisis that a developing or emerging market country faces, right? We have mm -hmm. a global pandemic, which is wreaking a havoc on lives and economies across the world. Countries are being hit by not one, but in some cases, three to four simultaneous shocks, right? You have the health crisis, you've got a commodity price shock, lack of access to international financial market and plunging external demand. So there's super urgent need for financial assistance, and no wonder some hundred member countries have reached out to us for assistance. So how is the IMF handling sort of this very unique crisis? Now, fully understanding the nature and depth of the crisis, the fund has stepped up lending through its two emergency financing facilities. One of these facilities, which is called the Rapid Credit Facility, is fully dedicated to low-income countries. And loans from this facility have a zero interest rate and a grace period of five and a half years. What that means is that if you borrow from this window, you don't have to pay anything for the next five and a half years. So it takes you through the whole crisis period. There is a second window, which is called the rapid financing instrument. That's for our general membership. And it also carries a very low interest rate right now of one and a half percent. 
The IMF has also temporarily doubled access limits for these two facilities. So why these facilities and not through regular IMF loans? Well, these facilities allow the fund to provide emergency assistance without the need to have a full-fledged program in place. As you know, these full-fledged IMF programs take time to negotiate, they have conditions, and these take time to put in place. Under the emergency facilities, money can be disbursed very quickly to mm -hmm. assist member countries, address their health and you know other vital fiscal needs. And we have so far disbursed some 10 billion US dollar to Africa. And this amount, to give you a perspective, is about 10 times our average in recent past. Typically, we lend about a billion dollar a year, right? And this is 10 billion already, and we're not done with the year. Mm -hmm. So that tells you the enormity of the crisis and also IMF's commensurate response. So we are still the lender of last resort, if you like. In this crisis, we have played that role as countries have come to us facing large financing needs and being shut out of market access. But in addition, if you like, the IMF has also played kind of a role of a first responder in some cases, rushing to provide emergency aid to member countries. Using the RFI, which I believe Nigeria has accessed, that's the rapid financing instruments. Using that as a case study now, the general information made available is that this instrument comes with no conditionalities, but it is standard practice with the fund that there are accountability measures. So can you explain or lay it out for us some of the accountability measures that are required to access and implement this fund? The two emergency financing facilities, as their name suggests, are intended to be rapid. So money is disbursed upfront upon approval of the request without our traditional exposed conditionality. But as you mentioned, it is important to ensure that resources are not improperly diverted. At a time of urgent crisis like this one, where many countries are under lockdown or there is restricted mobility, one has to zero in on what is absolutely critical and implementable, right? And without unduly burdening the government. That's what we're trying to do. So let's look at Nigeria's RFI. The government approached us for emergency assistance being hit by the twin shocks, COVID-19 pandemic and a plunging oil price. Mm -hmm. The IMF board approved assistance of $3.4 billion, which is equivalent to 100% of Nigeria's quota under the RFI on April 28th. And the assistance is meant to help Nigerian government provide critical support to the healthcare sector, help shield jobs, and also limit the decline in international reserves. So even though there are no conditionalities, there are important policy commitments made to safeguard the use of resources. Let me give you the examples. The government has committed to create special budget lines to record all emergency response measures. These will be published on Nigeria's Treasury online portal. They have also committed to undertake an independent audit of crisis mitigation spending and related procurement processes. Again, the procurement plans and notices for all emergency response activities, including the names of awarded companies and beneficial owners, are to be published. So the idea behind all of these is to strengthen budgetary oversight of financial assistance through full transparency. 
In addition, the government has also committed to undertake a safeguards assessment of the central bank. Let me also mention that the Nigerian government has specified two very important policy intentions as part of the RFI request. First, to move towards exchange rate unification and greater flexibility. And second, to strengthen domestic revenue mobilization efforts once the crisis passes. You mentioned in the beginning, you know, one has to carefully look at the revenue situation given the current economic crisis that we are in. So we urge the government to step up these efforts once the crisis passes. And both of these policies are very critical to ensuring macroeconomic stability. Mm. I guess an obvious question is governments have committed to some of these policy measures in the past Mm -hmm. and either for political reasons or otherwise they've reneged. Are there enforcement measures for compliance? So we are very much engaged with the government in terms of policy dialogue, assisting them in any way through technical assistance, through analytical support. So we will remain engaged with the government in coming months to help them implement these measures. But as I mentioned, these are not conditionality per se. So in that sense, it's not like a typical IMF program where you have a review and the team goes and checks implementation against a set of benchmark. On the final note, and this is um, speculative a bit, what are the long-term growth reform measures that low-income countries can put in place to get out of repeated sovereign debt crisis? Because it's like an old story, right? And where does it end? How does it end? Yeah, so you raise a very important issue. It feels like deja vu, right? Mm. (laughs) Every time we get into the debt crisis. Um, A few things, you know, we talked in the beginning of our discussion, the importance of revenue mobilization. I think that is absolutely critical. When you look at what happened to revenue to GDP ratio in, you know, let's say sub-Saharan Africa over the last decade or 15 years, as I mentioned, it hasn't moved much. And we tried to find, you know, successful cases of sustained revenue mobilization period in sub-Saharan Africa. And when you look at this long period of time, let's say since 2000, there are only a handful of these episodes, six or so. So it's incredibly challenging, not just the technicalities of it, because it's such a slow moving animal, if you like. You know, achievements come very slowly and political cycles are short. You really need someone to own the process and be the big push, the big political push behind it to bring in large gains. So first thing would be to put the revenue house on a secure footing, increase domestic revenues so that you don't have to go out and borrow as much. Right. That's first. The second would be to improve the growth performance, so to say, not having growth too tied to commodity cycles. So economic Mm. diversification, you know, I used to work in Europe and before that Asia, when I compare Africa to, let's say, European growth model or Asian growth model, one thing that stands out is how low the contribution of export sector is to growth in Africa. Mm. Generally speaking, you have uh, more successful cases, but generally speaking, this is a leg that Africa hasn't relied on too much. 
But at the same time, you know, Africa is a young continent. It has a lot of human resources, but you need to build these resources up so that investment comes, whether investment comes from outside or whether domestic or regional or continental investors pick these human resources up and make good use of it, it doesn't matter. But you need some ground conditions to be in place. You need a business environment that people can count on, that investors can count on. You need regular trade facilitating infrastructure in place. So all of these, what we call sort of structural reform, you know, good structural conditions, enabling conditions for businesses to take off. You need all of those reforms as well as good investment in human capital. So population is not a liability. Population becomes your resource. And that's how growth will take off. And if you've got the domestic revenue mobilization and you have your growth going, that is how the continent can take care of its debt problem in a lasting way. That's a very interesting answer. And there's a lot to unpack in there. Thank you very much, Jasmine. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, ideasontrapped.com. Again, ideasontrapped.com. Thank you. Until next time.